Have you ever had a civil discussion with someone you disagreed with or who had a different perspective than you? If you have, what did you learn? Here on The Moderate Review, we try to have these kinds of discussions. So, let's talk. On this episode of The Moderate Review, I am joined by Rabbi Samuel Spector, Rabbi of the Congregation Kol Ami Synagogue. So, let's talk. <laughs> oh, I have a lot of opinion. I guess all my opinions are popular with some and very unpopular with others. Um, you know, this this week, you know, uh, unpopular opinion it seems that I have is that the state of Israel has a right to defend itself and its uh, people from uh, indiscriminate rockets being fired into its nation and terrorizing its civilians. So that's one that for some reason, seems to be unpopular this week, but uh, is a, a view I have. I have a, a lot of opinions that are all very controversial, some on religion, some on politics, some on just the world we live in. Okay, totally agree with that. And so at the time of recording, if I'm if I'm up on to the, uh, the news, it's Hamas that is uh, firing their rockets into Israel. Is, is that correct? Yes. Okay. And so, as we begin, I guess since we're kind of on the topic of is the state of Israel and uh, the Jewish people in general, for my listeners who may not know the entire history of uh, Judaism, could you give a uh, brief history of Judaism? So our our faith tradition began 4,000 years ago with uh, a guy named Abraham receiving a call from God and telling him to go forth from the land that he had called his home and they knew to a, a land he didn't know, which we today call the land of Israel. Um, and this land would be given to him and his descendants. And um, and Abraham also was promised to be the father of a great nation and had to circumcise himself. Then he has son Isaac and his son had a and he had a grandson named Jacob, and Jacob became um, uh, took the name Israel after wrestling with an angel of God. And then um, Jacob had 12 sons um, who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and um, disinstated, and they became enslaved in the land of Egypt eventually until they were liberated by God and Moses, and then given the Ten Commandments and the Torah on Mount Sinai, and then wandered the desert for 40 years until they uh, entered the, the land of Israel, the Promised Land, and um, there established eventually a kingdom of Israel. It was later divided into a northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel got destroyed in the 8th century BCE, the southern kingdom got destroyed in the 6th century BCE. Ten of the tribes went missing. We don't know what happened to them. And there was exile and diaspora. Some of the Jews returned to and reestablished, eventually rebuilt a temple and established a new kingdom called Judea eventually. And then that was destroyed by the Romans. And for a couple thousand years, we were in exile and diaspora. There's a lot of things that happened in that time that I could talk about, but um, kind of a m more modern relevance. In the early 1900s, a couple million Jews went from Eastern Europe to um, to the United States and um, also started to immigrate to Palestine. And then there was, uh, of course, the Holocaust, which decimated Europe's Jewish population. 
and following the Holocaust, a few years later, the state of Israel was established. And um, today, about half of the world's Jewish population lives in Israel, and about half the population of the Jewish population of the world lives outside of Israel, primarily in the United States. So right. that's a bit of the, as brief of a summary of Judaism, the history of Judaism as I can give you. So as I've studied uh, Judaism, I think it's also, I mean, as you know, and I'm sure not all, all of uh, my listeners may know that Judaism actually is divided into different sects. And so with the sect that you are um, affiliated with, what is the structure and organization of your congregation? The structure and organization of my congregation? Congregation or I guess, or maybe your, um, um, I guess, yeah, sex, uh, excuse me. Yeah, of your congregation and also maybe like other maybe like like minded rabbis, like is there are you kinda of like all bound together by a unified doctrine or is it kind of vary from like congregation to congregation? Uh, well there there are movements and our congregation is unique because it's affiliated with both the reform and conservative movements. And so there are theological things that come with that. However, we aren't hierarchical like the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Catholic Church are. We don't have a person at the top who decides doctrine for us. We come up with our own doctrine and, well, not our own doctrine, but we look at Jewish scripture and, and, and such and, you know, come to our own conclusions and opinions based off of that. You know, at, at my synagogue, uh, I'm I'm the rabbi, um, spiritual leader of the synagogue. We We also have a Cantor who leads the ritual and such, and we have we have an executive director who handles partially the business affairs, and then we have um, a lay led board of trustees who deal with synagogue policy, uh, passing the budget, you know, and things like my contract and renewing me and or not renewing me and uh, and my salary and such. You talked about Jewish scripture. What um, makes up Jewish scripture? Well, um, I mean, the most important doctrine is the Torah, which are the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the it, then there's the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Christians call it the Old Testament, but we don't call it that. Um, and it's in a different order than uh, the Christians have in a different order than Jews do, and uh, we call it uh, the Tanakh, which is an acronym for uh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and the Kitubim, which are the writings and wisdom literature. And so, uh, you know, that makes up our Bible. There's also, though, um, the Talmud, which was written a couple thousand years ago, almost about 15, you know, 1800 to 1500 years ago, and that's doctrine that teaches us how to live in a post-temple world. And on that, you have the Mishnah, which is um, the oral tradition of the law in Judaism, and the Gemara, which are teachings about that. And um, then we have various commentaries on on that, on those documents and the, the Bible. And uh, typically, what, um, what commentary do you uh, and your congregation typically read and, and follow? I mean, well, we, we say all the commentaries, but uh, the Torah commentary that we distribute on Saturday morning uh, that people, some people look at is the Eitz Chaim Humash, 
which was produced by the conservative movement. But, um, you know, we, I study um, Rashi, I study Ramban, I study uh, lots of different commentators, and including um, modern ones as well. And as we're kind of continuing this, how does one uh, become a rabbi? And uh, yeah, how does one become a rabbi? Well, so there are different ways, according to the movements. I mean, there are some people who do something as simple as like going online or shadowing a rabbi or something, or in the Orthodox community, somebody who studies intensely for a couple of years is given the status of rabbi. But in kind of mainstream Judaism, like for me, what I had to do is I had to go to school for, after undergraduate school, I went to school for five years and uh, of seminary. And I did one year in um, Jerusalem and four years in the United States. And over that time, I took so many classes. Uh, I had to learn Aramaic. I had to learn four types of Hebrew. I had to learn philosophy and history. I had to do pastoral care internships. I um, took classes on synagogue management and budget and fundraising and so on and so forth. So um, uh, there were a lot of things I did over those five years and a lot of internships I had to train me to be a rabbi. And um, part of what that was as well is that I had to learn a lot of ethics. And this is why I encourage people to find a rabbi who has had the training like what I've had, because uh, I'm part of a rabbinical body. And uh, for me, I'm a part of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, but there are other ones as well. Um, and we are bound by a code of ethics and have to undergo ethics training every year. And what does that uh, ethics training look like? Well, we we study lots of different things, take seminars on appropriate finances uh, and um, appropriate use of our of synagogue funds um, so that um, so that people aren't embezzling or improperly using those synagogue funds. We take courses too on uh, in lectures and seminars on um, appropriate boundaries with congregants. And so uh, we don't do something like have an affair with a congregant or mm-hmm. anything like that. And uh, making sure that we are in our business practices and also in our personal interactions, uh, living up to the, the standards that we are held to as moral exemplars. And um, that involves also reviewing the ethics committee and um, the the ethics um, documents and, stuff and making sure that, you know, we're behaving properly in that and not doing things also like approaching congregants from another synagogue or whatever. Um, so the, that's kind of some stuff we do. What would be, or what is the daily life of a rabbi like? Every day is different in a way. Uh, you know, I do hospital visits. I have a lot of committee meetings. I, teach a lot of classes for both children and teenagers and uh, adults. I lead services, officiate life cycle events from funerals to weddings to baby namings and bar and bat mitzvahs and everything. So um, in an average week, I spend a couple hours a day just answering emails. So uh, in an average week, I probably work close to about 80 hours a week. So a lot of work. So as we're kind of continuing what, um, how do you maintain and grow your congregation? I think I maintain and grow my congregation by making sure that we are relevant, by making sure that 
Um, we aren't always doing things a certain way because that's the way they've always been done, but asking other communities and doing research and trying new things to see what works well. I make myself accessible and available to our congregants um, when they're going through times of difficulty and such, and making sure that um, I'm present for them. And well, when somebody tells me that they're moving to town or interested in joining the congregation, I find time to get together with co for coffee with them and just get to know them and hear what's important to them in terms of Judaism and see how we can bring them into our community. And I am trying to show incredible hospitality in that sense, uh, make people feel welcome. At the same time, we I ask myself, what types of reasons do people join a center of worship? What what are the things that they're looking for that they can't get elsewhere? And largely it's worship, education, pastoral care, and doing acts of kindness, uh, social action, social justice work. And so, um, you know, I work hard to make sure that uh, we are devoting a lot of time and energy to those those areas. And just out of curiosity, is there a way for like someone to, I guess, formally join your congregation or is it more of like someone just comes up and just says, I want to join and that's it. Or. Well, you have to pay, um, you have to pay membership dues to be a part of the congregation, but we work with everyone to make sure that finances are not a barrier to entry, but um, most synagogues, including ours do have uh, dues memberships and that give you the perks of being a part of the synagogue, but also help us um, uh, keep our lights on. You know, at the end of the day, we have a $1.3, $1.4 million budget. We have to pay our staff. We have to put on programs. We have to keep our lights on and pay our utilities and mow the, yard, the lawn and things like this. And uh, all that costs money. So, um, so uh, we have people who are generous and supportive of the community in that regard. And as we're kind of continuing on, you talked about how you uh, went through years of rabbinical studies. I guess my question is, what is faith to you? How would you describe it to somebody who is uh, who is not Jewish? What I would say is that faith is the belief of something greater than yourself and something. And the faith is believing that tomorrow can be better than today. And I'd also say that faith is the yeah, the belief that tomorrow can be better than today and recognizing that our desired world differs from our actual world, but believing that not only can it get better, but that through our principles and values, we will be the catalyst to, to create that desired world. So kind of more of along the lines, you know, to talk about being that, that, uh, that catalyst for change. How do you, or how do your, um, how would you describe how you or maybe your congregants are divinely inspired or, or guided? Well, I mean, we learn in our tradition that as Jews, we're supposed to be a light unto the nations of the world. And um, we learn that the entire message of the Torah is that that which is hateful to you do not do unto another. And so we look for problems in the world and we ask ourselves, what, what are the problems and challenges in the world? And then we ultimately pray as if everything depends on God, but try and act as though everything depends on us and um, 
advocate and lobby and donate and march and so on and so forth. In almost every religion, uh, every religion has had some sort of uh, changes made to doctrine and practices. In your opinion, when is it necessary and what is the process like? Well, um, I think we have to make informed choices and ask ourselves, what is the reasoning behind keeping these doctrines and practices? And, you know, frankly, ask ourselves, what are reasons to change um, the way that we have practiced our faith? And which ones are motivated by kindness and which ones are also um, necessary for the future sustainability of our people. And is there a particular example that uh, you can think of right off the top of your head that you've witnessed? Sure. So uh, one is uh, the issue of same-sex marriage. That was something that we did not do um, for a long time because of what it says in Leviticus. But as we've come to understand more about gender identity and um, about queer identity and homosexuality and such, our attitudes have shifted over time uh, to be more inclusive and, and to be kinder and to be welcoming and treat others the way that we want to be treated and to not see something as sinful because maybe it's different than what I do, but instead ask myself, do I see love and holiness in, in the union of these two people? And the answer is I do. Another example as well in, in the reform movement of Judaism is that in order to be Jewish, your mother has to be Jewish. And a, a few years before I was born, the reform movement said, you know, if either of your parents are Jewish and you are raised as Jewish, then you will be considered Jewish if you identify exclusively with Judaism. And uh, th that's a position I agree with as well. Not every Jew does. But um, I do, because I don't think that in our day and age, when we can do DNA testing or whatever to prove that the person does have um, a Jewish parent, I don't think it's uh, appropriate for us to exclude someone on a technicality because of who their um, mother happens to be and who, who their father happens to be. My next question I do have is... Um... If you could describe maybe the difference between having a standard, like having like a religious standard that you hold versus uh, being bigoted, because um, I am having a religious a, person. Sorry, and, having a, oh, say that one more time. A bigoted opinion. So like having a, having a religious standard versus having a, being bigoted, because I feel like almost every religious person maybe kind of have, have this uh, experience at one point where some people may claim that their standards that they have. So like if, they disagree with same-sex marriage, you know, that, that somehow they're bigoted, whereas their religion says, no, we can't, you know. And so I guess maybe, maybe uh, could you kind of maybe explain to me, I guess, more your point of view on more of the difference between that, having a yeah. standard and, and being bigoted? So what I think is, I mean, I think that one, it can be a bigoted thing to say, I deserve rights that other people do not. But also, though, with that, what one of the things I love about our country is that um, we are a country that has separation of church and state. And so, for instance, if somebody says, I'm opposed to same-sex marriage because my faith's doctrine goes against same-sex marriage, 
that's fine. So be it. You know, okay. But I disagree. But you're entitled to your your religious views and beliefs. However, if you are then saying this is what my religious belief is, and so therefore I think that should be applied to everyone, in my opinion, that's not appropriate because you know I would say my religious view differs than yours. So why is it that your view has to be put on mine? In my opinion, when we're talking about rights and liberties and, and such, everybody should have have the same freedoms. For instance, I know um, some Orthodox Jews who don't believe, since we use this example, uh, um, same-sex marriage goes against their religious interpretation of what's appropriate. And so they don't believe that those folks should be married in a Jewish ceremony. However, they also say, since we live in a country that has separation of church and state, I believe those people should have the right to get married in a secular ceremony. Or, or if there is a faith tradition that does um, marry those folks, then so be it. That's fine. And they're able to distinguish their religious views for um, what should be applied onto everyone else. And mm -hmm. so that that's kind of what I see as well. Like, it goes against my religious view to eat pork. Um, it says pretty clearly in my doctrine that you shouldn't eat pork. But I don't think that I should, since that's what I believe, then that should be the, the law of the land for everyone. You know, and we, we see these things in Israel, too. Uh, there are Jewish extremists in Israel who believe that under Israeli law, um, every everybody should be observing the Sabbath and all things, like no businesses should be allowed to be open on the Sabbath. No buses should be allowed to run on the Sabbath. Cars should not be allowed to drive on the Sabbath. And I met an American uh, Orthodox Jew who, who was a lawmaker in Israel who disagreed with them on that. And I looked at him and said, you mean you support, you're an Orthodox Jew and you support people driving on the Sabbath? And he said, no, of course I don't. He said, I don't agree with that at all, but I support their right to be able to do that. Hmm. So that that's kind of the distinction I try to draw is, you know, am I making it so that my religious views and beliefs should be the lay of the land for everyone? I don't think that should be the case. This concludes part one of my interview with Rabbi Spector. Please join us next time for part two. The views expressed in the moderate review are solely of the individuals participating and not necessarily of the organizations they are affiliated with. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please tell your friends and please follow us on Twitter at tmodrev, that is the letter T, modrev, one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart.